0: You're listening to episode 46 of In Film We Trust. I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream.
1: And now, on with the show. Ah!
0: It's been 20 years since the release of The Return of the King and the subsequent conclusion of The Lord of the Rings Trilogy, a film series which brought Peter Jackson worldwide acclaim and recognition. But all the greats have to start somewhere, and for Jackson, that was a story about an alien invasion of his native New Zealand and the efforts of a small militia to fight them off. That film was the, some would say, appropriately named, Bad Taste. With a few costumes, little money and a skeleton crew of mostly close friends, it would end up being his ticket into the world of international cinema and remains one of the most highly regarded cult films of all time.
1: I've got to say, of all the films we have covered, of all the directors we have covered, Peter Jackson is probably the weirdest throughway into discussing the Splatter film. Now, admittedly, I'm not really the hugest Peter Jackson guy. I never was. I came to The Lord of the Rings relatively late. I did like them when I seen them. Fantasy, admittedly, isn't my bag. I know it's yours more than mine. But more importantly, especially to me here, Wayne, Splatter films.
0: Honestly, if we were going to be talking Splatter films... You'd think the most common through would be through Herschel Gordon Lewis, who is regarded as, you know, the King of Splatter. Godfather of Gore was the term I heard uh, used to describe him.
1: You know me at this point, Wayne. (laughs) Fairly well. I don't think it's just from the podcast. No. But I think in our private life, you know I'm a bit of a Herschel Gordon Lewis fan. I do know that. His box set is one of my great treasures in my Blu-ray collection. Blood Feast from 1963. I think that's where a lot of this started, didn't
0: it? Generally speaking, that's regarded as the very first one. We've spoken before about how do you define the beginning of a certain genre, even a subgenre. But 1963's Blood Feast, that seems to be the consensus first one, the first big name, at least.
1: Obviously, before something takes a hold, there is always influence prior to that. And D.W. Griffith's intolerance, Mm. here's a little reference. He was using a gruesome spearing shot in that film, and the shot held quite long that was quite splatter for its time and that's talking about we're talking mid-1910s back when that's happening right right and there was also the famous Louis Bunuel and Salvador Dali film Un Un Chien Adelot 1929 with the infamous shot of the cutting of the eyeball it goes into close-up we see the slice of the eyeball it's very gruesome it's very realistic and I think this sets the way for Herschel Gordon Lewis in 63 Now, I said a moment ago, I'm a huge Herschel Gordon Lewis fan. I am not saying he is an artist (laughs) here. I am not saying he is Hitchcock-level filmmaking. He knew what he wanted, and he was a hustler, essentially. Once he finished his last film, Wizard of Gore, you know, (laughs) there's a title. Sounds like a
0: title of a film he would make.
1: Right. He got out of the business and spent the rest of his career in advertisement. He wasn't in it for the long haul. It was a financial game for him I think but in the meantime he made Blood Feast 63 highly influential probably his greatest film Mm -hmm. 2000 Maniacs 2000 Maniacs is one of the most important films in the splatter genre and it is invocative a certain period of time it's exploitation as well as splatter <laughs> and it is just a really really good time at the cinema
0: for me when you talk about splatter films i found it very hard to distinguish them because when you talk about splatter films you're talking about films that they revel in gore they revel in excessive violence and you said about films from the late 1920s that was just before the Hayes code came mm-hmm. in so after that for a long time you weren't going to get films like that then uh, kind of beginning of the 60s that's when it was kind of eased off so that's what it makes sense you would get movies like blood feast i looked up a few other titles films we've covered before maniac yeah excellent film mm-hmm. uh, ichi the killer was another one oh yes even something like the thing john carpenter's the thing mm-hmm. necromantic was another one oh yeah two more of ours reanimator and planet terror so those kind of films that are they're kind of comedic in their excessive violence their excessive gore the excessive bloodshed it's treated kind of for comedic value it
1: doesn't necessarily Necessarily have to be, and some people would tie in the torture porn scene, Hostel, Saw, for example, in the splatter film. But I think you're getting slightly away from it. It fits there, but it, it makes an interesting point. What is the distinction between slasher, splatter, for example? There is some key differences. A slasher film revels in the kills. It doesn't necessarily like for example, let's talk about Halloween. Halloween, yeah. Halloween's not necessarily dwelling on the gore aspect, even though there was multiple killings. Mm -hmm. Friday the 13th are quite gory, but they're not essentially reveling in it to the point of blood feast. The slasher's favourite prop department is the special effects. The Splatter film's favourite prop department is the butcher shop.
0: <laughs> Basically, we you talk about as you talk about like your Thomas Savini's, because with something like Halloween, you're focusing more on the, the killer. Suspense. On the killer and the suspense. In the Splatter films, we're talking more about the gore. And in later years, you're talking your 2000s, like you say, that's when... They kind of got bad reputations because they were deemed torture porn. Because you had your saws, hostels, human centipede twos, oh, even yeah. even films I've heard deemed extreme splatters. We're talking like your martyrs and your Serbian films. Oh,
1: you you have to fit in the new French extremity movement. French, in French extremity martyrs movement. is yes. a great film.
0: Exactly, things like that. Things like Serbian film, which really pushed it. I know that's not what really offended most people. It was there were other parts of that film yeah. that bothered people <laughs> more. But with things like Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, the residents resurrection of those franchises did a similar thing they made, they brought them back they made them gory they kind of moved away from the suspense and they made them more like more kind of generic slasher films generic horror films
1: and most importantly over the last several years we've had damien leone's terrifier one and two starring art the clown as the villain now can i just say <laughs> is there a more perfect horror directing name than damien Leone? You've got Damien, the son of the devil. The You've Omen. got Leone. <laughs> Sergio Leone. Sergio Leone from the Wild yes. West. It is a pretty perfect name. With
0: a name like that, you could really go only go into horror directing, couldn't you?
1: But this is a weird through way. Because how does Peter Jackson, the Peter Jackson <laughs> of Lord of the Rings, the Peter Jackson of The Hobbit, the Peter Jackson of Heavenly Creatures, how does he fit into this? Because as I said at the top of this... I am not a Lord of the Rings guy. You are. I do prefer
0: Lord of the Rings. I like it a lot more than you do. I wasn't so keen on it first time. I don't know what it was. Maybe a bad introduction. But when I went back, I've seen all the films. I love all the films. The Hobbit to a lesser extent. But to be fair, if you ask Peter Jackson, he'll say the same thing. Because it was originally Guillermo del Toro's project. But he left. So I'm not sure what the reason was. And Jackson picked it up. You feel like his heart really wasn't in it, but when he made the Lord of the Rings films, he really struck gold. Because he wasn't the biggest name at the time. I'd certainly never heard of him. I know you had with, he had Heavenly Creatures, he had The Frighteners. Mm. I remember a friend of mine in Australia recommending Meet the Feebles. Still haven't got around to seeing that yet, but with Lord of the Rings trilogy, he really struck gold.
1: Well, with Peter Jackson, there's a lot of him in his films, whether that is this film, what we're discussing, or Lord of the Rings. One of his biggest influences is stop motion and miniature work, especially the work of Harryhausen, you know, Sinbad films, (laughs) Jerry Anderson, Thunderbirds. Now, I've got a little anecdote. When I was younger, and I've never seen Thunderbirds or Captain Scarlet since I was a kid, I went to a fancy dress dressed as Captain Scarlet. Good man. Yes, yes. It was a bought costume.
0: <laughs> were, were you indestructible? Because if
1: not, you hadn't gone all the way. No, the damn strap <laughs> on my shoulder broke and but, I put oh. in something else. I have no idea. Oh. But I bring this up because I know there is somebody here who is a big <laughs> Jerry Anderson fan. Would you like to pontificate on <laughs> Jerry Anderson a little bit?
0: Jerry Anderson, massive uh, influence in the, the super marionette. In fact, he created what's basically called super marionation, which right. is the marionette puppets mixed with, like, with animation, standard backdrops and such. Growing up, I'd say Captain Scarlet and Thunderbirds especially, two of my favourite TV shows. In fact, my dad actually said, I don't know how much he was joking about this, but he said he would make those shows, at least those ones, mandatory viewing for all children growing up. And why was that? Because unlike a lot of film a lot of shows that were aimed at kids it didn't feel like those were talking down to you it felt they felt very adult they had very adult scores for example very adult themes especially captain scarlet which is why it wasn't as popular mm. as Thunderbirds because it was dealing with a much darker subject matter. Even the puppets' designs looked a lot more adult, a lot a lot less maybe palatable to younger audiences. I love the fact we've spoken, we've gushed about practical effects before. The fact it's done practically because they have a new series which is animated. You don't get that. There's a new Thunderbirds show, is, Thunderbird from... shows, yeah, is it's, there? Yeah, no. it's been going on for a long time, but mm. it's all done in it's all done in CGI. No. It doesn't look anywhere. It's not near puppet respect. work. No, it's not puppet work Ugh. at all. That's the thing. Anderson in, as himself has said when he did Captain Scarlet. <laughs> He tried everything he could to stop having scenes where the puppets walked, because he could never make that (laughs) look. Does it look like just bobbing up and down? Yeah, just the weird bobbing up and down kind (laughs) of like a horse. Exactly. It looks like you're on the back of a horse all of the time. But those shows, I always loved them. They always felt very adult to me. I can even watch them back now, and I still, I'm, I'll still, i
1: make fun of them, but I still really enjoy them. You must love Parker and Stone's Team America then, do you? Damn That's right. That's a huge influence. Absolutely
0: damn right I did. That's a
1: big... They were very much influenced by Jerry. Anderson, they aren't they?
0: Surprised that after experiences making Bigger Longer Uncut, they actually made another film, oh, but yeah. I'm glad they did because it was a damn good film. Great spoof just a very very funny
1: movie. We do have to highlight as well Jerry Anderson's wife Sylvia. Mm-hmm. She played a big part in his career.
0: A lot of designing she did a lot of the voice works as well and because she because she outlived him she also kind of carried on his legacy and the Anderson name. She was instrumental to the making of those series. She wasn't a side's character, she was instrumental to them.
1: And I think Jerry Anderson's influence for peter jackson was most evident in this was it his second film meet the feebles the feebles the
0: second one i have not seen this film this looks
1: quite interesting
0: i haven't seen him either jackson has said that it didn't do as well as some of his other kind of comedic work because he felt it was too dark kind of too satirical those films that come out which are maybe kind of ahead of their time in terms of their their humor and their satirical elements that's why he thinks it didn't do as well as bad taste for example
1: but it was puppetry work as well wasn't it meet the feebles yes (laughs) <laughs> are you are you tempted, being an Anderson fan, to see it? I would definitely want to see it. I yeah. had a
0: fr- like I said, I had an Australian friend who just got, he was going on and on. I never got around to seeing it, but I'd very much like to. Even that name, Meet the Feeble, sounds that sounds quite fun.
1: Cue us up, Wayne. Are we in for any Australian <laughs> anecdotes today? On this one? Well, did you go just, to New Zealand as well? I did go to New Zealand. I was six weeks in yeah. New Zealand.
0: One of the best holidays I ever had, honestly. Ooh. But... For this film, there's not a lot I could really say. Uh, really, could inject into this. Not as much as when we did Road Games or Wake in Fright, for example.
1: No intergalactic fast food chain franchise owners.
0: That didn't happen at any point to me. I remember no. g- gazing up at the sky in wonder. But yes, there was nothing on the on the level of what the characters in this. So film have uh, to Jackson's
1: with. misrepresented New Zealand. He did. He lied about his own country. How dare he! But Peter Jackson's history, look, he had this Jerry Anderson-influenced way about him. Have you seen moments of his short films? A short film, I think when he was seven, where he entered into a competition. Mm-hmm. And it is very much Harryhausen, Jerry Anderson work, stop motion specifically. And you can see, it's a, it's a monster movie. And you can very much see the influence of what the of these filmmakers were talking about. And this is the ingenuity of a young Peter Jackson, seven, nine years old, however old he was, within filming on his parents' eight millimeter camera, yeah. he would literally put pinpricks into the film frame to make it look like the flash of a gunshot. Now, when you were seven or nine, did you think of that? I didn't.
0: No. That's an incredibly ingenious thing exactly. to do. But that's the whole thing with, like we've talked the Meri- El Mariachi approach, having to be a DIY, having to kind of work on something. In fact, interestingly, that whole idea of doing the pinpricks to simulate the mu- muzzle flashes, do you know what big mainstream movie that would become a part of? It was The Fablemans. The Fablemans. The Fablemans, because the little kid Sammy Fableman, he does that at one point because he's tasked with making this wild... Spielberg West, film. Yeah, Spielberg film, with making this Wild West movie and he has to think of some way to simulate the muzzle flashes mm. and he does it, he gets an idea. Idea. I can't remember how, but he gets the idea to put pinpricks into the film to simulate muzzle flashes, I and it works. Know- per- it works perfectly. I didn't know that was a technique,
1: so. Peter Jackson must have known it back in the seventies even.
0: Well it's just improv improvisation. Yeah. He did uh, in nineteen seventy-six a short film called The Valley when he was sp- That's a film, I think. It's a similar kind of thing. He's just working with friends, he's just very low budget, yes, super eight camera, like you say, and it was actually shown on something called Spot On, which was a children's TV
1: show at the time. Oh really? So he was still getting some kind of exposure even back then. If I was to link him with any filmmaker, and look, people don't want to Say, this is the New Zealand version of, etcetera. Yeah. this is the American version. New Zealand's answer to, blah, right. blah, blah. But blah. if we can parallel a career, for me, and when I was watching this, when I was re- looking into Peter Jackson, I was thinking immediately, immediately, Sam Raimi. Both their first feature films are Splatstick. Yeah. Do you like that one? Splatstick, Splatter yes. and Slapstick. Both films, Evil Dead and bad taste you can see how they have woven into the mainstream because these aren't just mere low budget filmmakers because Evil Dead Within the Woods which was Sam Raimi's short film before Evil Dead which turned into Evil Dead Hmm. so you can see the ingenuity behind that you can see the machinations of somebody who can work within the studio system because they're essentially working as a one man studio at this point a one man production crew and Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson, there is a trajectory there. And I'd say when Peter Jackson transitioned, especially into Heavenly Creatures, is akin to Sam Raimi transitioning into A Simple Plan. It showed off. Their work within a studio system, even though Sam Raimi, of course, done The Quick and the Dead in a studio is a studio film. But that was still playing with genres, whereas a Simple Plan, Heavenly Creatures are vastly different to anything they were known from before.
0: You could call them ground up filmmakers. They started out with not necessarily the means to make a film, but the know-how. They had a camera, they had a group of friends and they had an idea. For me, that's the beauty of films like that. It demonstrates right. just that, that raw, creative talent they had. You could argue Sam Raimi did more genres. He maybe branched right. out a bit more. Jackson did more fantasy stuff because he did his Lord of the Rings, and he had his Hobbit. A film called Mortal Engines, did you see that? No. no What's that ma- about? Pretty much nobody did. <laughs> it's, it's, have, you, have you seen it? Yeah, I've yeah. seen it. I, I watched it at a cinema in China. There was nobody else there, and it was a massive box office bomb. It's It's a dystopian future where cities are like on wheels or on tracks moving around this dystopian landscape. Escape. but it was the kind of film where as soon as we walked out of the cinema I'm like what was that about what decade was that that was 2018 I believe it was oh, it so that, new. that was his last feature film he directed wow
1: I didn't have an idea about that
0: no neither did I I'd, I'd only heard about it because I've seen it advertised at the cinema but to be fair you know a knockback like that Jackson's probably gonna recover he's gonna go into something else he's still a big enough name in the industry
1: did it run a little too long was it a long film no I think it was only about two hours really it wasn't even like a, That's a it really? wasn't
0: even like a slog or anything it was just like I can see all of this money on the screen I just don't know what it's
1: servicing have you noticed it's quite funny how the epic let's the epic film has changed over the years if you go back to the 50s early 60s 40s even the epic was very much you know lawrence and arabia it was very much the sweeping romantic type film and genre filmmaking was very much tight and restrained it was very much a sci-fi film the monster movie mm-hmm. and you know king kong 33 yeah. it's a two-hour film which it's quite a long film for a genre type film but here, Peter Jackson's 2005 King Kong, three hours twenty.
0: Yeah, that's even that's even longer than Return of the King.
1: But it's it's funny how it's switched from the epic is now the what was the B movie you know 60, 70 years ago. Because you
0: have that they're directed big. Jackson was always good at that. That's why the Lord of the Rings film so big because they're directed big and they have that big feel about them. You look at the King Kong from '33 and the one from 2005 completely different feel just in the way it's acted the way it's shot obviously you had the more primitive effects back then but everything about it feels so much different it's actually i believe peter jackson's favorite movie king kong
1: not his version no no, no the 19 the, the, the original yeah no, 1933 what I, do you think of peter jackson's king kong
0: I had an issue with the fact it took so long to introduce Kong and it did feel like there was way too much focus
1: on the human characters. Did you wonder at the time, when the fuck are they getting off this boat? Exactly, yeah. <laughs> I'm
0: sitting there thinking, this almost feels like it's a completely different movie that just has a giant gorilla spliced into it. Have we it. put
1: Titanic on? <laughs>
0: yeah, it's like a Godf- Godfrey Home movie, but instead of being invaded with ninjas, it's being invaded with King Kong. Do you know
1: who loved Jackson's King Kong, though? Uh, who roger ebert it was his eighth favorite film of that year and gave it his perfect four star rating
0: really yeah Mm, okay then to be fair you have to say roger ebert was a lot more generous with his reviews than say gene siskel was
1: now let's contrast this okay king kong king kong coming over on the ship with the whoever's on the boat with him jack black adrian brody yes right now listen to this wayne When the small coastal town of Kahoa falls prey to an alien invasion, the men of AIDS, the Astro (laughs) Investigation and Defense Service, are called to investigate. On their arrival, the village of blue-clad farmers have been turned into ravenous predators, hunting down the AIDS, who fight for their survival. Now, if you're wondering what's the point of this invasion, well, human harvesting for an intergalactic fast food franchise, crumbs, crunchy delights, duh, well, now
0: right read that back again without smiling or laughing <laughs> you can't you can't do it can you?
1: Now okay that's a high concept that probably requires a high budget yeah Wayne unfortunately yeah 25 fucking thousand 25,000. so how would you how would you go from A to B you do,
0: well you gather your mates together Yes. because we, he was he, he, Jackson for quite a while like with the valley and with uh, with this he'd worked with a yep. group of mates yeah. It took four years to make, filming on weekends on just basically a minuscule budget, and he's just using his friends. So keep the production as tight as possible. That's why I love when you look in the credits at the end; it's the same names that keep popping up over and over. again. It's like a Coen Brothers. They should have just been friends. Just Peter Jackson and friends. Yeah. I mean, it is made by Wingnut Films, which is Peter Jackson's production. Do you know company. why
1: it's called that? Uh, why is he's that? an aviator collector? He is World War One aviation. World War One aviation, and did he not have a company that made model airplanes as well? It sounds, I think like, so. sounds like somebody.
0: Who, I know. I think he was a collector of uh, World War One actual planes, though. A- actual, like shot yes. s- like, with camels and such. I, wa-
1: <laughs> I wonder if he has a pilot license, is that a or is it just rich yeah. guy uh, posturing, where you can just like he just looks in his damn.
0: Maybe is that another reason he made King Kong? Because you could have the old school plane oh, flying a Kong. I hope there weren't CGI. No, I, I would be weren't. disappointed but knowing Jackson before he did the Hobbit. It probably was done with practical effects. Yeah.
1: So look. 1987 this film yeah released released as you said four years gestation period mm-hmm. he i think he was still living at home when he was making this i think so yes he was working as a photo engraver at a local newspaper him and a few of his friends and after years you know we discussed this this his eight millimeter shorts the valley as you said mm. he finally bought a second hand 16 millimeter bolex camera now a 16 millimeter bolex camera you have to wind that camera up and i think you get approximately approximately 30 seconds of shooting for of footage from that so, a lot of filmmakers in this time were using 16mm. 16 millimeter. 16mm 16 millimeter was essentially the relatively cheap digital camera of its day.
0: Also, do you know how old the camera was used? I think it was about 25 years old. 25 years old. Another fi- another film, the, uh, an infamous film from the 60s that was made using that kind of one-up thing, Manos, the Hands of Fate. So you can <laughs> say there is a right way and there is a wrong way to use a camera like this with that kind of limitation.
1: But this film originally began as a 10-minute short called Roast of the Day.
0: <laughs> well, I think that's or, a completely or, different film. Yeah, that doesn't sound. I quite don't think likely. it was an
1: alien invasion.
0: I, I think it was trope. probably vastly reworked when they did it because he used a group of friends of his, and it was filmed on the weekends because apparently it was being scheduled around his friends' soccer matches. <laughs> either the ones they were playing or ones they were going to. It was essentially just get your mates in whenever you can. Because I mean, Jackson did the film for nothing. He wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't have like taken right. a fee or anything to make it. I, I, th- think.
1: I think the actor's done it for nothing as well. They would have
0: had to because you couldn't afford. You know, once you've got all the effect and the costumes and stuff, you wouldn't have had any money to do anything else. Definitely
1: not SAG members. No, definitely not <laughs> SAG members, no.
0: Also, do you not think the fact that it's kind of filmed pretty much all outside. Kaihoro, where it's allegedly filmed, that's not even a real place. It's a Maori word that Jackson essentially made up, which apparently means, if you translate, it means food town. Or fast food. Or fast food, exactly. It
1: what day you ask him? Yes, exactly. It maybe very, very appropriate. Right.
0: But. Way out in the middle of nowhere, we've seen films filmed out in deserts, etc. I'm guessing one reason was
1: you don't need film permits to do that. But you know what I like about this? You know how gonzo this approach is? Yeah. How fly of the wall it is. Essentially, Peter Jackson is working, and I think he upped his work days to work six days a week, and all at one point you'd be able to do is film on a Sunday to save the money, to get the budget. How minuscule that was. Just to explore this passion project but towards as they were wrapping this filming up the New Zealand government afforded them $235,000 to finish their film that's quite beautiful, man. That's how much they believed in this the project. This is a prestige film. I know, New <laughs> Ze- I, I know the New Zealand cinema scene wasn't necessarily booming. No. But for them to afford that amount of money, even though it's relatively small scale, yeah. is still testament to, you know, that's a pretty cool move for such a you know a genre picture. A, splat- a splatter film. The New Zealand government have blood on their hands. <laughs> exactly,
0: yeah. In fact, it's not even just the fact they gave the chunk of money, which was the, the statement of faith that they had but a guy called Jim Booth who was the, the CEO of the New Zealand Film Commission he left the company he left that position to work as a producer for Peter Jackson produce the next few of his films that's how much he believed in this project
1: that's just great you think what is are they, what great. Are,
0: you have to think a film like this very cheap film very silly film what are they seeing it is it the passion that they're seeing is it the belief that Peter Jackson had to because he was working full time while shooting this film so the belief he had to get his mates out every single weekend to cobble this thing together they must have seen a lot in him there's a lot of faith to give almost you know a quarter of a million to make the film
1: that's what i was alluding to before it's the ingenuity you see in somebody it's the same was with sam raimi as i'm saying and when you can see the passion and you can see the the technique behind that these aren't just two guys this this isn't just peter jackson trying to make you know some sleazy picture this is a competent guy you can see in his short film work and i think he made a short film called james bond where he's playing james bond and is james Bond. <laughs> james bond is one of his heroes but you can see it you can see this through line through his career that short film the valley the talent the little techniques we mentioned and you can see it brought to this i'd assume a lot of the techniques he's using in this film even though you might not see it or suspect it are probably in the lord of the rings the Force perspective for example people spot this people can see talent when they see it
0: i think what happened is he had this idea and he really wanted to prove himself because let's be honest this is inherently a very silly film which has a very silly concept but the fact that he went out and he made this film it'd be a learning process there are shots in this film that you could kind of see in the later lord of the rings films he's famous for example close-ups with wide-angle lenses those kind of things which he would hone and use later on but you could tell watching this film this wasn't just some rubbish that someone made on a to just make a few bucks it felt like a real passion project he threw so much of himself
1: into this we've got to remember the milieu of this time wayne we're early early 1980s 1979 pivotal year fangoria publication so you have all these filmmakers or all these budding filmmakers and they're getting all these techniques all this information now in fangoria magazine now, in Fangoria magazine, you had tips, you had advice, you had columns about you know genre filmmaking, horror filmmaking that you necessarily wouldn't have easily come by. Of course, I know it's annoying to state this is pre-internet, <laughs> of course, but you've got to remember the work of Tom Savini, Dawn of the Dead, The Burning, Friday the 13th. For you or I, or anybody in the sticks of that time, you're not necessarily co- going to come across many publications where Tom Savini is given advice, but now you have this major publication that's making its way to, you know, all these cinephiles of the day. And I think that makes a big difference. I think it definitely does. And the influence of Sam Raimi, as we've explained, which is a direct influence on Peter Jackson.
0: It's bringing this kind of knowledge, this knowledgeability to a whole new generation. Apparently, it was actually a really fun shoot. A guy called, uh, I found an interview with a guy called Tony Hiles, who's a TV and film producer and director. He was one of the very small crew. And he said, he says, I can safely report that working on the film was great fun from start to finish. (laughs) To be fair, it does look like maybe a complicated film to try and make, but it does look like a very fun one. Very tongue-in-cheek sense of humor.
1: Now, we mentioned Splatstick. Yeah portman 2 splatter film slapstick how did how did the humor stick with you did you like it did you appreciate it? did you think it was too silly because some people said it looks like a demo tape for the monty python
0: i can understand why you would see that because it has that uh, that silly slapstick sense of humor honestly i thought the film was really funny for me the reason is because it was endearingly cheap not embarrassingly cheap there was no, no parts where i rolled my eyes at. Like, oh that's a stupid effect or that's a stupid thing to do i thought why is this happening? Oh my God, this is so ridiculous. This is absolutely hilarious. Those kind of feelings
1: were going around my head. That is a great point because there is things that are just stupid for stupid's sake and there's things that are silly, but you can see there's an intelligence behind that. And I think that's what this film is. It is silly. It is superficially stupid, mm-hmm. but the dialogue, the presentation, the guerrilla tactics, how they actually made it. There is so much intelligence behind this and... Through Peter Jackson, and Peter Jackson himself, funnily enough, is this one of the stars of this film? Yeah, he plays Derek. Which I have got to say, Wayne, listen to this. He has got one of my favorite quotes from the film, and it's so fucking stupid. He says, "I'm a Derek, <laughs> and Derek's don't run." <laughs> yeah, that was, that's news to me. When did that become a stereotype? I did, I, did,
0: I did sit there and think, I'm like, I know people called Derek. I'm pretty sure they've run before. <laughs> no. That was one of the quotes I wrote down because I thought. It's such an ingeniously silly line.
1: Now, here is one of my favourite taglines for the sale of this film. One of the taglines, Wayne, is one thing the aliens hadn't counted on was Derek and Derek's don't run. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so they actually really took that and ran they, with they it. They took it with... Ran- Oh Wayne, come on! Oh, oh, so I'm sorry. I didn't even realise I was making that point. Apologies, everybody. Plan. But with the dialogue, the dialogue is one thing that really stuck out to me because it's clear how it's a very colloquial, very quirky lines of dialogue. Like at one point, they're talking about someone who's died. I think it's actually Derek they're talking about, and someone said. They use the term he said he's turned his toes up and he's popped his rivets. And, uh, I looked those up. Those are not surprisingly specifically New Zealand slang. I've heard that say. So. Yeah, I've heard those before, but they're not specifically New Zealand slang. I thought they would be because they're writing in that kind of vernacular. Do you know what it reminded me of? When we watched The Vast of Night mm-hmm. and you had characters saying, Oh, let's bake a biscuit and I don't know a frog's rivet about very that. very
1: specific to like early sixties, fifties culture. Exactly,
0: or oh, ras my berries, lines <laughs> like that. So it's a very kind of it's a
1: very particular time and place. Which which I really like. It's not trying to be Americanized. No, It's very much a New Zealand film. The characters are, you know, we've seen stereotypical Australian slash New Zealanders, (laughs) and there is characters who are playing to that. Did you notice in this film, and it's prevalent in the characters, is it Ozzy and Frank? Yes. They're very much a, would you say, a character of an action hero?
0: Yes, especially Ozzy. I do like also the fact he is called Ozzy.
1: Th- <laughs> I am sure that's after Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, it could be, maybe. Or do you yeah. think it's a New Zealand dig at Australia? Maybe just a reference to this film. Which is funny, because he's one of
0: the best characters in it. I mean, like, there's not that many to choose from, but he's actually one of the best in the film, I thought.
1: There are several actors in this film. They all, three of them, I think it's three of them, also worked at the local newspaper that Peter Jackson worked for. One of them was a labor gardener i'm pretty sure right one worked with transport there it's very convoluted way because they've all got some day job these aren't people who are aspiring to fame and fortune or celebrity like peter jackson for example and you can kind of tell you don't want to shit on their performances but because it is what it is but you can't tell these aren't professionals. Yes. A lot of the time.
0: Also, because the dialogue is all dubbed. Because I'm guessing with the camera, you roll it for 30 seconds and they would have to dub everything in like in uh, post-production. Well,
1: I'm with get- the 16 millimeter Bolex, they couldn't film with sound. Mm. Hence why they had to dub it in afterwards. But when the New Zealand Film Commission gave them the extra money, they did actually buy a better camera. But they were so bad with sound, <laughs> it was almost inaudible. So they ended up just dubbing it over it anyway.
0: Which makes sense because there's a lot of different guns because it's a very it's a very trigger happy film you say it gets to the counters with the aliens lots of guns going off every gun in this movie pretty much sounds exactly the same they all have the same post-production muzzle flashes on them the guns were all made believe it was like aluminium pipes they just cobbled together
1: of course look the humor in this film AIDS for example the acronym <laughs> the Astro Investigation and Defense Service they are called into Kohoro right? Kohoro yeah Kahura, yes are you, are you correcting me there? Uh, only slightly, yeah. <laughs> okay, Mr. Australia. I'll say it's a Mr. Nudge, New Zealand, nudge in the right direction. Kai Horro. Kai, Horror. Kai Horror, yeah. Right. Yeah. So even there, right, we've got the aides. They're coming into this town, this small coastal village, because they're a government institution. And they get wind that there's an alien invasion. Peter Jackson has stated, when he's watched this film back, he says, my God, why the hell did I have so much talk in the first 10 minutes of this film? Did you find it slowed the pace down?
0: Not necessarily, no, because it feels like the dialogue is fast-paced because there's these quick conversations going back and forth. For me, it's just trying to introduce the characters, who they are, what they're doing there. I'll be honest, Peter Jackson playing Derek, I went back and forth on whether that was him or not because I looked at him like, because I know Peter Jackson's in this and he does play a character later on who looks like Peter Jackson. Mm -hmm. That Peter Jackson seemingly has not aged from then to now. Looks exactly the same with (laughs) with the beard and the long hair. But with the start of it, I didn't think it was badly paced, because I thought it was just trying to introduce everybody. Maybe there's a fair amount of dialogue, but because it's funny, that's what I liked about it. I liked how, when they're talking about these aliens, because the idea is these aliens have come down to this planet, and they refer to them in terms like this, extraterrestrial lowlife. Astro Bastard Dirty Hua which is actually New Zealand slang for a whore and my favourite Intergalactic Wanker <laughs> just like how they're using like would you use these terms of aliens to genuinely come down it seems like such a strange way of talking well part
1: of the AIDS team is Barry <laughs> Barry's quite a good character and there is a good line by it Mari says, why can't the aliens be friendly? And Derek says, there's no glowing fingers on these bastards. We've got a bunch of extraterrestrial psychopaths on our hands, like a visit from a planet full of Charlie Mansons. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Even though that's kind of very kind of like almost overwritten, like a lot of words, it's really playing around with the, the sense of humor. You, you mentioned they you said, why can't the aliens be friendly? Later on, they've had this huge firefight with these aliens. And when they're escaping in the car, what does one character say? He says, geez, they're real dickheads. <laughs> Just... That, just that silly sense of humour. The whole thing feels like, and when I was watching this film, I even said this, I wrote this on my notes as I was watching it, it feels like a group of people just got together, got really drunk and said, you know what would be a really good idea for a film? And they just wrote it out and they went out and made it. That's what it feels like. That's why I think it's so
1: sarcastic and so tongue-in-cheek. Do you find it very inspiring, though? It makes you feel like you could do this also. It's deceptively simple because we've watched the the behind-the-scenes. There's Mm -hmm. a great... Documentary, I think, released by B- BBC Two or on BBC Two anyway, called "Good Taste and Bad Taste," uh-huh. and it goes behind the scenes, the machinations of how to create it, and you really see—that's what I was saying before—the ingenuity behind Peter Jackson's methods. But what did you think of the Derek character? He's very nebish, He's very bookish. Yeah, you're—you're not supposed to think he's much of an action star. Turns out, Wayne, mm. he's he's going to be the action star. And not only the action star, he gets he fucks off to space. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Bizarrely, after he's lost his brains, which yeah. is like a whole running gag through. It. I also noticed, is he wearing what looks like a Harry Potter scarf?
1: You did note this when I said to you, <laughs> what did you think of this film, Wayne? You said, why is Peter Jackson dressed as Harry Potter? Yeah,
0: he looks like it. He kind of speaks like it. He has the like to say he's got that kind of nebbish way of going on. Right. He's positioned as the nerd. He seems like if you had a group of like UFO enthusiasts he would be the one that would believe it the most strongly i'm not saying he's necessarily the leader but he's definitely the most enthusiastic of the group when he's, it comes
1: the to like, he's the pencil pusher he's the he's the pencil he's he, on the radio all the time he's the guy with the desk
0: job who's been brought out into the field for the first time that's that's the best character description I can that's think probably of why him. he's
1: got a scarf he's not used to being outside the
0: characters have these odd quirks i noticed with frank do you notice this he keeps putting an unlit cigarette into his mouth cigar cigar sorry he keeps putting it in but he never lights it at one point he puts it in then he pulls a balaclava over it like over the cigar
1: hey he's just, he's just cancer conscious
0: <laughs> yeah he does get it lit at the end i like how that he almost, likes
1: the affectation he just doesn't yeah. like the smoke
0: i do like how he lights it right at the end before the credits like that's a big moment like frank finally got to have his cigar no
1: way <laughs> wayne build that up mm. how that scene actually plays out is he hands it to aussie and aussie mm. says i don't smoke And then he takes it back and he lights it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Aussie for me, definitely the most kind of gung-ho and trigger-happy. Kind of of the heavy metal guy? Yeah, the heavy metal guy. Maybe that's why I like him so much. What did you think about the aliens themselves, the way they're presented? Because most of the time in the film, the aliens look exactly like regular people. I'm Mm -hmm. guessing we're doing a whole aliens have come down and possessed their bodies. First of all, that's a great way of keeping the budget down. The aliens, they all wear the same clothes, like these kind of like, like denim jackets. That keeps the budget down. That made it funnier to me as well. I'm like, oh, we're just having aliens that just look like people.
1: Well, that that's the joke because it's supposed to be a farm in coastal town, and farmers, apparently in New Zealand, are supposed to all dress in denim, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm.
0: I was almost wondering if it was some kind of satire and like government agents or, let me like say, pencil pushers or people from the government who just all come out dressed exactly the same and how they're all supposed to be. Because the aliens in this, at the start, when they're human, they kind of move like shambling zombies. That's the way they kind of shuffle around. like They're kind of
1: uncoordinated. There is a nice little, you know, touches and flourishes or themes, as we should point out to this film, is the shadow government. Did you notice in the opening scene, Mm -hmm. the government officials who you don't really see are in shadow, Mm -hmm. obviously commenting on the shadow government. And then they position the AIDS team to... Hmm. Kai Horror?
0: I also did notice they had Queen Elizabeth II on speed dial. What do you do? Your, mag- your Majesty Aliens are invading. What's she meant to do about that?
1: Because do they not mention the ineptitude of government institutions as well? There's all these little comments on the inefficiency of government, let's say. Yeah.
0: So maybe there are little things like that running through. I don't think it's it's not forced too much in your face. They're, like, no. they're undertones, the little nuances just here and there in the film.
1: But you said, what did you think about when the aliens turn into, you know, recognisable aliens? Because we should say they have this beastly figure, this bulbous <laughs> head and with a slanted top. But Peter Jackson in his own house baked, baked those heads in the oven, which is why they're slanted backwards. Mm-hmm. Because to fit them in the oven, he had to push the head backwards.
0: It's a classic kind of film alien design where the aliens are basically anthropomorphic, but then they'll make some adjustment to them. For example, they have these big bulbous heads with the pointing back heads. They kind of walk in a shambling way. They talk in a very kind of voice like this. So they just change little things like this. I think it's an example of you know how we have a, you're working with a limited budget but again it's just funny the fact these aliens look so much like us even talk in english and i like how when you have these firefights between the the heroes and the aliens how often the aliens just don't use their
1: guns and just flip the humans off like they just get really annoyed and start flipping them off well there's so much visual humor it's like does derek not run out of bullets at one point and he's shooting one of the aliens and he just makes noise and the alien acts as if he's shot and realizes he's not being
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Also the fact that you notice a lot of the guns, they seem to last, like the magazines seem to last forever. I was always thinking, is this some kind of joke about 80s action films? You know, That's like, what it is, yeah. Like your Schwarzenegger's and your Stallone's that could just fire forever and never run out of One bullets. One cartridge
1: seems to last forever. But it's like, you know how I was saying there a second ago about the how he cast the heads of the aliens. But that runs its way throughout this whole film. Because there is a scene, a pivotal scene, where Derek is on the top of a cliff and Robert is hanging off. Now, Robert is also played by... Recognisable Peter Jackson. Bearded Peter Jackson Mm -hmm. versus Harry Potter on the top. (laughs) But, you know, a crane shot, a crane would cost literally even to hire thousands and thousands and thousands of UK sterling pounds. (laughs) But the crew, Peter Jackson, they built their own crane, they also built their own cam. He mm. was saying a cam would cost about $10,000. He made it for $20.
0: Did you not say once, uh, when we were talking about a simple plan, Sam Raimi managed to make a cam just like using a plank of wood? An Evil Dead. Exactly. Yeah. It's just that DIY filmmaking. I got the feeling that there's a few scenes here. One is where Peter Jackson, as the alien Robert, who, of course, yep. is, at this point is in Human, guys, he's hanging over a cliff. Quite a precarious
1: position. This, cr- this crane shot, which I'm talking about. And not only did your crane work, But you're only playing around with one camera. All you can afford is that one camera, the Bolex. But they position it on this crane and I think they nail it onto the makeshift crane and they hang it over the cliff. Now he said in in a specific film this may not have worked if you are using a long lensed camera but because they're filming in widescreen. It didn't really matter where you're pointing it because it's going to be in frame. It's going to be in shot. And it works really good.
0: It does. And him being in that perilous position, Peter Jackson hanging over the cliff, there's another scene later on where he's chasing this guy, uh, Giles, who is like a charity collector. and (laughs) He has his hand stuck in the car window. You get the feeling that Jackson volunteered to do those roles because no one else would. Like, this is my movie. I'm going to have to do the things which are the most risky. Having his hand stuck in a car window and hanging by his foot off a cliff edge
1: now can we discuss giles giles played by craig smith so in this film he almost plays essentially a pivotal role he's the charity worker who is in this town of kaihoro and he's part of a charity called bread craig smith <laughs> he was newly married at the time of taking this film on this production lasted over four years His wife wasn't pleased that he was in a splatter film. (laughs) Also, she wasn't pleased that they were now filming predominantly on a Sunday because Peter Jackson was taking that additional six-day work week to raise the funds for this film. So what happened was his part, the charity worker, which was supposed to be much larger in the original machinations of this film, was reduced. Now, you're not going to necessarily notice it's reduced because of the power of editing, Mm -hmm. but he left for years because his wife was so disturbed by this, so perturbed by this. So what happened was, several years later, down the line, they're still filming this film, Wayne. So luckily for Peter Jackson, Craig Smith gets a divorce, which means (laughs) he's back back on the scene. It's That is why he's in the end of the film, the start of the film. But it's not just that, because they had films... X amount of footage they could edit him in and it appears like he's in there all the film
0: because let's be honest continuity didn't feel like it would be the biggest concern because you know it's through four years of the film hair and facial hair changes quite a lot throughout maybe not so much for Barry played by uh, the late actor Peter O'Hearn who has that very distinctive facial hair like he's got a line here on his chin and he's got two lines in his upper lip because he had to pretty much keep that for four entire years I because I think Jackson had to keep reminding him because I think he thought it was almost second nature to just shave it off he actually had to keep that exactly the the same. I noticed a few others as well. This is just for me, again, all part of the charm of the film. At one point they're in the alien house and they're drinking like gruel out of a Mm -hmm. bowl. You can see some aliens already have gruel in the mouth from a previous take. When Frank's car gets blown up with the rocket launcher, which looks hilarious, it (laughs) moves like it's sat on the road then it moves off into the field when it gets blown up. So little bits like that. They obviously you think they watched back and thought uh, maybe let's not refilm that there's a scene where an alien has an axe in its hand and it gets the axe stuck in either a door frame or a gate post
1: i think oh dear. that was an accident and they thought a happy accident a happy accident
0: thought that's kind of funny we'll just leave that in
1: there but you know that scene where you're saying with the ball of gruel yeah that looks like peter jackson do you know why it looks like peter jackson well wayne in peter jackson's house you know he's a whiz of special effects here yeah he got The material they use at a dentist to mold the teeth, false teeth, bridges, etc., he got that material, he shoved it in a bowl, he dunked his head, and it took a minute to set, and he had to have the right facial expression. He dunked his head in that bowl for a whole minute till it set. (laughs) I wouldn't like to see what happened if it never came off. No, right enough. But there you go. That's not Peter Jackson in that scene. It's the mold he made from that. That's what I'm saying. The ingenuity way. That's how he became a mainstay of studio films.
0: Can we also just mention this scene has probably my favourite line in the whole movie just because of how unexpectedly hilarious it was the leader of the alien who of course just looks like a human is some fancy guy in a suit and tie and he's giving a speech about how some of their brethren have been killed Mm -hmm. obviously by the by
1: aids. are you referring to Lord Crumb
0: yes to Lord Crumb that's the guy and he's talking about how some of the brethren have been killed by the humans And I like how they didn't say by some evil humans or some nasty people they say they were murdered by some real arseholes
1: (laughs) (laughs) Just simple and to the point. You didn't need anything fancy. No, exactly. You didn't need,
0: again, like they use terms like intergalactic wanker and extraterrestrial lowlife. No, it's some real arseholes. (laughs) How it's that very, even though they're supposed to be aliens, they're very still, kind of a very down-to-earth sense of humor.
1: But you know, the leader of this fast food chain, Lord Crumb, intergalactic fast food chain, (laughs) Lord Crumb, played by Doug Wren, Unfortunately, died during the production of this yeah, film. Yeah, he didn't even get to see the film completed. No, but because he's behind a mask, they they dubbed over his voice with a different actor.
0: Something else as well, I noticed, and this is not so. This is something I did not expect at all. Even more than the whole "real assholes" line was, this movie has several allusions. We'll call them yep. to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's a film that just keeps coming up on this podcast somehow. Not just would the you fact- like to tell me those allusions? Yeah, not just the fact that Derek at one point goes on a rampage and uses his chainsaw. But the fact that one of the big men, one of the big aliens, is introduced when Giles, the charity collector, he knocks on the door of this big house out in the middle of nowhere. The big man comes out, clonks him over the head with a hammer and pulls him inside. (laughs) Exactly the introduction we get to Leatherface in the original Chainsaw Massacre film.
1: Created by sponges. That's how they used that mallet.
0: Sponges. It was sponges. Sponges. Well, there you go then. I like how it's all edited so you won't actually see the blow. Again, the power of editing can just save so much in a film like this. Also, because the house interior is very dark and foreboding. Also, you could say because they say they're going to eat Giles later, so that kind of cannibalism as well, even though they're technically aliens.
1: I wonder how many films the Texas Chainsaw has actually influenced. I imagine
0: <laughs> it seems to pop up in half of our The episode. entire
1: career of Rob Zombie. Yes, Rob <laughs> Zombie's entire career <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, pretty
0: much. Yeah, so can I ask, what did you think of, say, the action in this film? Because the second half of the film, or the third act, it's a lot of action, because it's shootouts constantly between AIDS one card even says we need to change that name. But between the aids and between the aliens, some of whom are morphing into their true alien forms, uh, do you think it was good? Do you think it was, was that well choreographed?
1: For what it was, mm. for what it was, I thought it was it was quite effective. Now, Peter Jackson is really here shining with his technical ability, mm-hmm. but I don't think, for example, we covered. Planet Terror, we covered El Mariachi by Robert Rodriguez. I think he was more equipped at shooting action on a lower budget than Peter Jackson. Would you agree?
0: I would agree. In fact, I felt this was going to come up. We're going to say we're talking low budget here, we're talking little equipment, little crew. What's more competently made? El we'll Mariachi. Say El this. I'd say definitely El Mariachi. Yeah,
1: for, for purely for the action.
0: I don't know if it's a different time period but the action is done in a lot more kind of exciting and more visceral way especially yeah. like the shootouts in the streets. Yeah, they are handled in a much better way. That's not a dig at Jackson. That's not a dig at bad taste. I just think Rodriguez happened to do it better.
1: No, be be honest, way you're alluding that you hate peter jackson <laughs> you think people who like lord of the rings are pieces of shit and you said his king kong was yeah. vastly inferior
0: yeah. i take back everything nice i ever said about yes. peter jackson
1: that's the correct one
0: but thank you for bringing his bad taste peter jackson that was nice of you
1: this enthrall of ray harry house and it plays into the last part of this film because the last part when they get to this house was being overtaken invaded by alien creatures to get this effect, because what happens is, when they get to this house, there's a shot where they have to blow it up with their rocket launcher, and there's also a shot where it has to take off into space. So, the crew of this, Peter Jackson and the people working in this film, essentially became carpenters, and they made <laughs> two, two miniatures of this house. One a small scale so they could blow it up and one a tiny scale so they could put it on the end of their makeshift crane and elevate it up looking like it's lifting off to space that's 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 what i'm saying that's where peter jackson excels it's not necessarily the action the action is there to facilitate it and it's passable it's not great it's not terrific rodriguez done it better in el mariachi but this technical know-how is what elevated this film for me because look i've got to say I didn't love this film as much as you. Okay. You really, really liked this I film. I really did like it, yes. I liked this film. But what I liked more than the film itself was the stories behind the, the scenes, the sum of the parts, most of the stuff we have highlighted. It's, they create the whole for me, whereas I think you like it purely as a work of art. I liked
0: it as a pure, raw art piece of entertainment. I love the backstage stories because that's where there's so much inspiration you get from films like this where you had somebody, you had a camera, he had an idea, he had a few mates and he wanted to go out and make the film. You could argue nowadays that's almost a bit easier because you can make whole films on iPhones nowadays. You can just get a Steadicam and you can make a whole film there. But the fact that he put so much of his time, so much of his money into it, and the fact that the New Zealand Film Commission gave him almost a quarter of a million bucks, to finish it showed how much faith they had
1: in him it's a passion project expressed in a different way to what we're used to seeing from peter jackson works extremely well it's a hell of a good time but i'm not gonna let you off the hook you told me a while ago that you had a favorite quote from this film and i want you to end this episode on that because i like that quote also suck my spinning steel shithead Peter Jackson, you've served us well. You've been listening to episode 46 of In Film We Trust. I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film. From the obscure to the mainstream.